morning. I uh, hope you brought your Bibles with you because uh, this is going to be a day that you want to see what we're talking about. So open them up to Mark chapter 13. Um, we're into some interesting waters uh, this morning. And so um, if you are a guest with us, I am so glad that you are here. Um, if you have called Riverview home, uh, you know that we have been walking through uh, this tethered series in Mark. Um, and we've left no stone unturned as we've been walking through. And so um, we've hit chapter 13. And if any of you have looked ahead and saw chapter 13, you're like, oh, I wonder what we're going to cover there. I wonder what Anthony's going to talk about. I wonder how deep we're going to go. Well, we're, you're going to see in just a few minutes. Um, but as we have been going through the Tethered series, just kind of as a recap for you, um, what we've said is that this book, we know it is totally about Jesus. Is it not? It's not every book in the New Testament totally about Jesus, but even the Old Testament, it's always pointing towards Jesus without them even knowing that it was pointing towards Jesus. Um, but so we've said it's totally about him, but there's this sense that Jesus, he's grabbed these 12 disciples, these 12 guys and said, hey, come along with me. And he's been intentionally investing in them. So the miracles, the, the casting out of demons, all the miraculous teaching, they've been there through it all. And in the recent chapters, what we've seen is that they have even been there as Jesus has been confronted with all these different religious leaders from the religious establishment. And they've been having this back and forth uh, between the two. And all through this um, tethering that Jesus is doing with them, he gives these disciples these moments of when something has gone down, they go off to the side and he says, hey, let's go over here and let's talk a little bit more about this. Let me tell you what actually just went down back there. Uh, and so what Jesus has been doing is he's been doing exactly what he asks us to do right now. He is being a disciple maker of these disciples. He's discipling the disciples in the book of Mark. And in the book of Mark, the overarching idea is that he's getting these 12 guys ready for the day that he's going to be leaving. So I don't want you to forget that as this over, he is preparing these 12 for the day that he leaves and the days beyond when he's gone. They're going to need to know what it looks like right now to stay tethered to Jesus. And so that when he's gone, they're not going to lose their way. So they don't start following some knucklehead knockoff Jesus wannabes that are going to come. He says there are going to become, there's going to be some that are going to come and they're going to try to deceive you. So he's letting them know now that this is, is coming and he's preparing them for that. So what I want to do is I want to shift gears a little bit here. And as we uh, are entering into um, this chapter in Mark, I want you to know this is the most difficult chapter in the entire book. Um, and some people, when you look at it, it's one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture, but certainly in the book of Mark, because it's been debated over the years. The, the, like, here's the deal. When you get into chapter 13, you start talking about the end times. The end times come up. And as soon as the end times come up, um, people start pulling out their charts, right? Start pulling out the diagrams, start trying to line up all the details on times and dates and um, which country is doing what and what war is happening and, and how all of this is going down, which this is a, it's a noble venture. And we certainly want to engage with um, the things that God's revealed to us in the Bible. But commentator after commentator and, and theologian after theologian and pastor after pastor, they loathe getting into this chapter because there's so much debate that's uh, around it. And 
people land in different places on what it means. And what happens is when you have differing opinions, people start fighting with one another. And they start losing focus of where their eyes should actually be. And, and so what I want to say is like, how do we, how do you and I handle difficult passages when we come to them? I think there's two ways that we can approach these. As, uh, when there's, a, 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 there's a sense that when we come to difficult passages as a teacher and as a pastor, I have to come at it with humility, right? I've got to come at it knowing that there are all kinds of incredibly brilliant commentators and expositors and pastors all throughout time. Not little peon pastors like me who study throughout the, the week and then I go to other commentators and see what other commentators say and, and try to pull together some thoughts and ideas so that we have something that we can talk about and teach with a, with a robust understanding and theology. These are guys and gals, um, uh, lovers of God, men and women who just love Jesus, who for centuries have been studying this particular text and other texts as well, and they've landed in different conclusions. They've landed in different spots. And so I have to come to this passage and I have to approach this with humility as a teacher and as a pastor. So that's number one. But number two, here's the deal for you as a student of God's word and as a listener this morning, You've got to come at this passage with humility too, or in other passages with humility, because there's this danger that we can become dogmatic and we become entrenched and dig our heels in thinking, uh, or in, in our thinking on things that just really aren't very clear. Um, things that we don't have complete answers to, that things that are hinted at, and that things that lovers of Jesus have always, differ, has, have always had differing opinions on. You guys with me right now? It's not an easy passage that we're getting ready to delve into. So by the time that we're done getting through this chapter, some of you are going to be like, wow, wow, that was super helpful, pastor. Thank you for walking us through that. Some of you are going to be like, I don't know about that, pastor. It's not how I was taught. It's not how they taught me in Sunday school. It's not how I've been reading it. And you're going to be frustrated uh, with me. And there are some of you who are going to be like, whatever, let's go eat. Let's, let's just go have lunch. I'm, was ready for you to get done by the, as soon as you started. Um, I was listening to a pastor and expositor, Tony Merida, this week, and he said something that I thought was helpful. He said, two Christians who love Jesus can land in two totally different places on the end times, but the end times are not an issue that should divide us and have us standing up ready to punch each other, right? He, he, he said, the big stuff we know, Jesus is coming back, Right? That's, that's a big deal. We know that. We, know, we look forward to the day that he's coming back. And the last thing I think is really helpful is that this is a conversation amongst friends, people who, who love Jesus. Because usually when you start talking about the end times, you're not, talking, you're not usually talking about the end times with people who, who aren't followers of Jesus yet, who don't believe that Jesus is coming back. Usually this conversation is happening in the context of, hey, you believe in Jesus, you love Jesus, you, you understand, you're orthodox, and, and we, we've got this same view that he's coming back, but we just don't agree on when he's going to come back or how he's going to come back. And so we land in different places. But we gotta remember that this is a conversation amongst people who love Jesus. This is a conversation amongst friends. And, and if you land at a different place, I think that might be okay. There are things in the Bible and uh, in our lives that God has given us to know that are for certain, that are concrete. Things like Jesus came from heaven, right? We know that. We know that he wrapped himself in flesh. 
We know that he lived a perfect life. We know that he went to a cross and he died on the cross for the sin of the world. We know that he was raised three days later. And we know right now that the world is waiting for his return. These are things that we know for certain. We know that all things were created through him and for him and by him. And all things hold together because of him. We know that his love is deep and we know that his love is wide. We know that he is the God of truth and he's a God of grace. We know that he has a plan for you and he has a plan for me. We know that he calls you and I to live our lives worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We know these things. We know them. There are things that we know for certain. But there are also some things that Jesus just hints at and that God just hints at. And he gives us a little bit of details and some things that he just kind of, and there are some things that he just totally keeps us out of the loop on altogether. And we may want more details, but some of that is those details that we want. It's on a need to know basis. And apparently those are things that you and I just don't need to know. There's information that only God is privy to. There's information that only God is capable of handling. You know, when you're raising kids, um, you know some things that your kids don't know. You, you know things that they may want to know, but they're not at an age yet to understand what you want them to know when they get older. They can't handle what you want, that, what they're asking for. There are things that God has in his grip and in his mind that we don't know, and that's okay because either we're not able to handle them or we just simply don't need to know. We've seen in the news over the past week that there is top secret, top secret information that was leaked out in the public. Anybody see that? And the question that comes out of that is, how did that person get access? Should he have had access to that? Um, who needs to know the things that he knows? When do they need to know the things that they need to know? There's a lot of questions that, that surround that. Now, to borrow from that, there is top secret information that only God has, and that's never going to be leaked out until he decides to reveal it to you and I in heaven, if he chooses to do that. But for right now, it's sealed up. Um, and so right now, we know that Jesus is coming back. But all the details that surround that, they just aren't very clear to us. So like we can pull from Daniel and we can pull from the Gospels and we can pull from Revelation. But there's a, lot of, there's a lot of fogginess and lack of clarity on that. We just simply know that he's coming back. I saw a meme this week uh, of Andy Griffith and, and here's what it said. He said, Paul, Opie said this to his Paul. He said, when is Jesus coming back? And his dad said, I don't rightly know, Opie. You see, we're not on the planning committee. We're on the welcome committee. Okay, we want to be on the planning committee and have all the details. But the reality is we're waiting for him to return. We, we know that he's coming and that's the information that we have. Um, there's definitely a fascination uh, about the end times and as Christians and followers of Jesus, it's natural that we should be excited for Jesus to return. But we've got some questions around that. How many, how many of y'all remember the, the Left Behind series? Did, did anybody read that? Like came out in the, in the night somewhere in the 90s and the 2000s, there were 16 books. Um, seven of those made it to the New York Times bestseller list. Do you know how many copies of those books were sold? 65 million copies of those are sold. People are fascinated with the end times. Um, I, I got saved in 1999, and uh, right after I got saved and gave my life to Jesus, there was somebody who came up to me and said, hey, I want you to have this book. It was the first, uh, the first copy. This is the Left Behind original. And uh, they handed it to me and said, hey, you're going to want to know how this thing ends. I said, you're right. I want to know how this thing ends, so give me that book. And, and I thought that that book was going to tell me all, all the details of it. And 
There's a fascination around end times. We get excited about that because we know that Jesus is coming back. And so we're in Mark 13. But although Mark 13 talks about the end times, I don't think it's just about the end. There's a lot that's packed into this chapter, and last week I thought that I was going to try to cover in one week, uh, just on today, and then somewhere in the middle of the week I was like, that is not even close to possible. And so uh, for the next two weeks, we're going to be going through uh, chapter 13, right? And so um, we're uh, going to cover the first uh, 13 verses of this chapter uh, this week. And so when we read our Bibles, or when we read anything for that matter, um, we've got to know that we can't just drop into a passage, right? We, and we can't, uh, we've got to consider what the context is. We've got to consider what comes before it, what's come after it, because if we don't, we're just going to end up kind of making up the details of what happened before or what's going to happen after. We can't just drop into the middle. Uh, or we're going to be confused about what's going on. And so here's the context. Here's what I think is happening. I think the context of the book, again, is to help the disciples to get ready for when Jesus leaves, And how are they going to stand up against the persecution that's going to come their way? Because Jesus has already told them, you read it in the other Gospels, that that the world is going to hate them. If the world has hated Jesus and we're connected to Jesus, he says, you can get ready and you can expect that the world is going to hate you too. And he just gets done fighting with these religious folks for the last couple of chapters. In chapter 11 and 12, he's been talking about how they've been misusing the temple. So that's the context that we're jumping into chapter 13 with. Um, And so he's getting the disciples ready with these practical details that's going to be helping them in the near future. And then somewhere in there, there's some details about the future that gets sprinkled in there as well about when Jesus is going to be coming back. But I don't think that Mark's main agenda here is to give the disciples and to give you and me some secret code that we've got to try to decipher of when he's coming back and that we've got to try to put all the pieces together. I think what he's doing is that this is a prompting that says, hey, it's about to get rough for a little while. I am going to come back. So until I do come back, you need to stay awake. You need to stay alert. You need to be ready for this. You guys with me? Okay, yeah, okay. So for our benefit for the next two weeks here's the framework that we're going to follow Um, there's three crucial things that I think believers need to know about Mark 13 there's a lot of things but three that we're going to cover over the next couple weeks Um, we're going to cover point one today and then hopefully we're going to cover the next two points next week next week if if we need to take three weeks we'll end up taking three weeks okay the first one is um, life won't always be easy for a follower of Jesus anybody encountered that It's not going to be easy for a follower of Jesus. And then he's going to talk about Jesus coming back and then how followers of Jesus need to stay awake and to stay alert. So we're going to cover the first one this morning. You ready to dig in? Okay. I was looking through the passage this week and there's a key word or a group of words that kept standing out to me. And whenever you see repetition in the Bible, that is God putting these blinking lights on the the pages for you. And he's saying, hey, pay attention to what's here. Don't just rush past this. I know there's some things we just kind of scoot past. But when you start seeing the same thing over and over again, he's like, hey, pay attention to what's going on here. And here are the words that that I saw kept coming up over and over. In verse 5, he says, uh, take heed or watch out or look for um, whatever your translation says there. The idea is, is take heed. Verse 9, be on guard. And 23, be on guard, be on guard, 
keep awake, stay awake. When that keeps popping up, you got to ask yourself the question, what's Jesus trying to get across? What do you think he's trying to say? He's trying to say, stay awake, right? He's trying to say, be on guard. Keep your eyes open. Don't fall asleep at the wheel. Because we're, we're living in a culture today, um, just like the disciples were living in then, that if we're being honest, many Christians today, we would say, man, we're just daydreaming. Man, we are being slowly lulled to sleep with, with comfort. There's this luring of, of, of sports. Like we're being lured into this and everything that goes around sports and how it's become an idol and a God for us. We've got this never ending cycle of entertainment that you can, you can turn on the TV anytime you want. You can watch anything that you want. You can, you can stink and watch a show while you're driving down the road if you want on your phone. Like there is no lack of entertainment. Don't do that. Don't drive down the road watching a movie. I won't ask you if you've done that or not. But there's no lack of entertainment in, in, our, in our world. There's constant distractions. And I think we've forgotten that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle and a war for our souls. Would you agree? Like we have forgotten that. And we keep taking the bait that keeps getting thrown at us. And you've got Satan over here. Hey, let me just sprinkle in a little extra. Let me sprinkle in a little bit of deception around the truth that sounds really nice, but it's totally wrong. Leads people astray. Let me fill people with an attitude of, man, I, I, I can stay checked out. I, 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 can, I don't have to go against the grain. I just need to fit in. And he sprinkles a little bit of that in there. And, and, say, and then he's like, hey, let me get them focused on something else. Let me get them fighting with each other. Let's get internal fighting so they forget about what the actual goal is here. Let me get them distracted from living as disciples. All the while... Satan is sitting back and he's watching us self-destruct. Or he's watching us fall asleep to this soft lullaby of the culture that it's been playing that he's busy creating behind the scenes. And Jesus is saying, stay awake. Stay alert. Wake up. We can't afford to fall asleep. There's too much going on in our world. Saying, stay awake, stay engaged spiritually. Stay awake in your home. Stay awake with your kids. Stay awake with your friends. Stay awake in the sphere of your work. Stay awake. Listen to me. If you wonder if it matters, if you take your hands off of the wheel for a while, dads, look at me. It matters. It matters if you're discipling your kids. It matters if you're leading in your home. It matters if you're at home. It matters. Moms, look at me. If you're wondering if your role matters in your home or at work or in the sphere of, of life that you're living, your role matters. If, you, if, you're, if you're thinking it's just easy to check out because things are rocky in my world or rocky in my home, your role matters. Your kids, your spouse the people around you, they know when your hands come off the wheel because everything around you gets impacted. Your role, is way into, your role is way too important to act like your role isn't important. It's way too important. So let's look at the immediate context together here in verse one. <clears throat> and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what, and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, 
Do you see these great buildings? There will be there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew, they asked him privately, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So context here, these disciples, they're out, uh, they're coming out of the temple. Um, we just finished up uh, resurrection day. And so we're kind of hopping back a little bit in this time frame. It's Wednesday, a few days before Jesus is getting ready to be crucified and hang on a cross. And they're on their way out of the city. They've just stopped fighting with the religious leaders inside of the temple. But before they leave, the disciples kind of look back and they think, and, and, and they're like, hey, dang, look at this thing. This temple is nice. Look at those buildings. Look at those stones. Is this not impressive? What wonderful buildings are we looking at? And you got to think about it from these boys' experience. These are country boys from Galilee, right? These aren't city folks. This isn't something that they see every day. They're kind of out in the country. And so the temple for them and for everybody else, actually, it's impressive. It was built by Herod about 10 to 20 years before Jesus shows up in Bethlehem. This was a big deal. Is uh, about twice the size of the, um, of the temple that King Herod or King Solomon had built uh, when he was instructed to build the temple. So it's massive. Some of the stones of the temple were like 40 feet long in a day and an age where they don't have the same kind of engineering and the kind of tools that we have for today. Guys, there was no CAD programs. There was no machinery that was cutting these stones for them. 40 feet long, massive stones in this building. Josephus, one of the Jewish historians, he said that the temple was so impressive that when travelers would be coming into Jerusalem, it looked like a snow-covered mountain to them. That's how impressive it was, that everything that wasn't covered in gold was dazzling white. It's beautiful. It's impressive to everybody who came into town. And you can go to Jerusalem today and you can still see some of the stones that are lying around on the ground um, that were a part of the temple. And Jesus says, hey, or Jesus looks at that temple and he looks back at the guys who've, who have said this and he says, not one stone is going to be left on another. And so they're walking on their way to the Mount of Olives. And when they get there, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, it's an interesting thing. I didn't study it, but Andrew doesn't usually show up in this mix. It's usually the three. Now you got Andrew in there. So if anybody wants to study, like, why is Andrew suddenly in the picture in there? Like, study it and let me know, because it'd be really cool. But Andrew's in the mix too. Um, And they pull Jesus aside and they're like, hey, remember when you said that thing back there about the temple being destroyed? What exactly did you mean by that? And they ask two specific questions. They ask, when is this going to be destroyed? When's the temple going to be destroyed? And what's going to be the sign? How are we going to know that this is happening? And for our benefit and for the benefit of all of history on this passage, this is where all the debate comes in, in this chapter. This is where the problem shows up. The debate is about these two questions that these disciples ask. Because how much of what Jesus says next in the following verses is about the temple being destroyed? And how much of it is it about the future prophecy of the end times that Jesus is going to be talking about? Because in this passage, the whole chapter of 13, Jesus seems to go back and forth to what's going on right now in their immediate 
um, uh, circumstance, but also a little bit later in the future. And so the question comes in is, how much of this is about the temple and how much is, of this is about persecution that's going to come later? And so when we read this section, we understand some of the Old Testament too. We read about an event called the last day in the Old Testament. Uh, the last day or the day or the day of the Lord that comes out of the Old Testament prophets. And that was talking about a day uh, when God was going to bring judgment on those who had walked away from him, who had not lived according to obedience, um, to obedience to his commands. And so there was that day or the day of the Lord that people had to look forward to. And so when we're talking about things that we know, we know that there's going to be a day where judgment comes for those who haven't trusted God's way of salvation, particularly in Jesus. And we know that there's going to be a day where the sheep and the goats get separated. We read about that. We know that there's going to be a day when the Messiah, and for you and I, when Jesus returns. So how much of this is about the temple being destroyed and how much of it is about the persecution that gets associated with that day of judgment that's going to be coming? That's the question. That's where the division comes in. And so when Jesus starts to answer the question, question we've got to remember the context Jesus is preparing these disciples to be immediately ready for after his departure what does it look like to be tethered to Jesus in a world that's fallen when things start falling apart so to me it, now there are at least six different ways to break down the the 30 plus verses in chapter 13 Six plus ways of how, how to read it. Is it all prophecy? Is it all happening in this immediate context? Is there a little bit sprinkled here? Is there a little bit sprinkled there? Is it this, 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 and then that, and then this, and then that? Or is it chunk and chunk? You know what I'm saying? Like commentators have looked at this and separated prophecy and actual time happening in different ways. And some just think it's all prophecy. That none of it has to do with their immediate context. And some people think that it's all immediate context. And then there's people who are all, people who love, listen to me, people who love Jesus are on different camps on where this thing lands. And so when Jesus answers, we've got to remember the context there. To me, and these first 13 verses here, I think these are uh, practical steps to help the disciples to get ready for the persecution that's getting ready to come their way. And it doesn't say it here, um, but history shows us that the temple, that it, that was being so wrongly used by the religious leaders of that day that it was actually destroyed by the, Roman, uh, by the Romans in the Jewish and the Roman wars that started in 66 AD and it found its completion in 70 AD where the temple was completely destroyed and the city was completely set on fire. Everything burnt down to, to, to the ground. That's exactly what Jesus said would happen um, and it was completed within these disciples' lifetime. It was a judgment on the religious leaders and how they had been leading Israel. And so the temple was destroyed. And so there's a literal fulfillment of what Jesus said. And if you were to go to Jerusalem right now, you would understand that there is no temple that is standing on the temple mount. There is a dome of the rock right now that is controlled by the Muslims and built by the Muslims. And so you can see where the temple used to be, but you can't see where the temple actually is. And the Jewish community believe that when Jesus comes back, there will have been a temple that is rebuilt in that, in that community that is visible uh, again. But there's no temple that's there right now. 
And so I want you to read the next few verses here with me um, and to get our mind around what's happening. You guys still awake out there? And so verse five, Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray or take heed or watch out um, that nobody leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. Keep your eyes open. Stay awake. Be alert. For they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand what you will, you're to say, but say whatever is given you in, in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will ra- rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my, for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And that idea of being saved there, we believe, is not a spiritual salvation. It is a physical salvation during that time period. So you have a lot of verses here. And so let's give it the, the heading that we talked about earlier. Life won't always be easy for a follower of Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying from these, uh, for these disciples. Um, if, you're, if you like to study this particular uh, text, what's happening here, it's called the Olivet Discourse. Um, and you uh, see it recorded not only here in Mark, but it's in uh, Matthew 24 and follows into 25 as well. And it's also in Luke chapter 21. And so you get to see different aspects uh, of uh, different views of what happens in the Olivet Discourse here in, in this conversation. Um, But the whole idea that Jesus is talking about in these 13 verses is that evil is going to continue to have presence on earth. It's not going away. Bad things are going to keep happening. False teachers are going to keep popping up. The world's not going to be a friend of the Christians. If they hated Jesus, they're going to hate you too. So he says, don't be surprised by the backlash when it comes against you. Um, So many times we read in the New Testament, like, Don't be surprised when trouble comes. In this world, you will have trouble. Rejoice when you face trials of various kinds. Like we are, as Christians, we are reminded time and time again that there is going to be trouble that's going to come our way. But Jesus says that this is a sign that the end is coming, that there are birth pains. There are pain that comes before the joy. My wife, she just had a baby and love her to death. She just turned six weeks old um, on Friday. And it's going so fast. But um, before uh, we went in and to have, uh, to have her, uh, my wife, like she got big, right? Don't tell her I said that. Um, she had a baby growing inside of her. And as we got closer to the, to the due date, there were pains that started to, 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 to trouble her. And she couldn't sleep well. And she started to feel things. I'd be like, is it time? Is it time? Do we got to go? And she's like, no, those are just Braxton Hicks kind of deals. Like, th- those, are, those are birth pains that are, that are letting me know that it's getting closer to time for the baby to come. And that's what Jesus says here, that all these things that we see happening, that it's not the end, that these are birth pains. This is the sign that there is something that's coming, but it's not here yet. 
There's going to be backlash that you're going to face. So what you and I should be concerned about is if there is no backlash. As, as a believer, if, if you look at your life and you never experience any pushback for your faith, it should be somewhat alarming to you. If there's never any, any pushback, it, it should be alarming. If your life is not looking any different than the person who's around you that doesn't know Jesus, that should be a wake-up call for you. There should be a difference. There should be a difference. Um, we've gotten into this habit of where we feel like we've got to blend in with the culture or we've got to blend in with, with society. But our life was never intended to blend in with the culture. Our life was never intended to mirror the culture. Our, our, our life as a believer was actually intended to stand in opposition to the culture. To, that, our, that our life with Jesus should look so healthy, should look so loving, should look so engaging and so full of joy that it would draw a culture to want to leave what they're doing to go to Jesus. But yet, we've somehow bought into this idea that we've got to mirror what's going on in our culture. That we have to fit in. We have to do what everybody else is doing. What Jesus says here is that when you face backlash, not if you face it, but when you face backlash, don't worry about it. He's gonna give you the ability, uh, he's gonna give you the ability to give you what to say when you need to say it. There's a peace of mind to not fret whenever the circumstances are what they are. He's gonna use you. He's gonna use your mouth to proclaim the gospel so that all the nations may know. So don't fret when you're facing troubles of various kinds. I stopped into a local shop uh, this week uh, here in Ashland and uh, I was talking with the lady there who was working and I, listen, I have no idea how this conversation started, but I'm glad that it did. Uh, and she said, hey, I just wish that I could be more bold with my faith and talk to people about it. Anybody else feel that tension? I just wish that I could be more bold or do you even care about it? But there's this tension of like, man, I, I probably should say something, but I'm not saying something. But so she said, man, I, I just wish that I could be more bold with my faith, and, my faith and talk more about Jesus. And because I'd been studying this passage this week, uh, it was kind of fresh on my mind. And I said, well, you, just so you know, you don't have to be afraid. Like, it doesn't matter if people respond to what you say or not, because God's in charge of the details. God's in charge of drawing somebody's heart to himself. Like he'll use your mouth and maybe you're a seed planter, maybe you're a waterer, maybe you get to be a harvest, but it doesn't matter if in the moment people respond to you and not, or not because God's in charge of drawing a person's heart. But what matters is that you are obedient when the Holy Spirit prompts you to say something because he'll give you what you need to say when you need to say it. You've just gotta be open and available for when the opportunity rises. And I shared a story with her of my friend who was at a restaurant uh, with his uh, family. And he felt prompted in the middle of this restaurant to stand up and to share his faith. Just think about this. In the middle of a busy restaurant, Holy Spirit says, hey, I want you to stand up and I want you to tell people about me. How many of y'all will do that? So uh, you can imagine the, the, the angst and the feeling in your gut, like, should I, should I not, should I, should I not? And he, and he didn't. He, he didn't stand up and say anything. And, and he's like, man, I just wish I would have been bold enough. I wish I, I would have had the courage. And he, and he got home and he said, if, I, if the Spirit ever prompts me to do something like that again, man, I'm going to do it. Now, he felt guilty, but guilt is not of the Lord. Guilt, comes from, guilt and shame comes from Satan. Um, a healthy prompting of the Spirit, that is what he was feeling. 
okay? It's like, if the Lord gives this to me again, I'm going to do it. And so it wasn't long before he and his family were in another restaurant. And as he was sitting in the restaurant, uh, the Holy Spirit prompted him again. And he's like, are you kidding me? Are, are you really going to make me do this? And so he stands up in the middle of this restaurant and he just, I don't know what he said, but he talked about Jesus. And people are looking at him like he's crazy. He's feeling like he's crazy. And people are jeering at him and they're making fun of him and they're telling him to sit down. But here's the deal. He did sit back down, but this time he sat back down in perfect peace in his spirit because he listened to the prompting of the spirit in his life. And Jesus gave him the words that he needed when he needed them. And the gospel went out. How many of y'all would freak out in that situation? Just one of you? Bunch of liars. How many of y'all did that? Yeah, you know? That it's like to think about that, but how many of us need the courage and want the courage to be able to do that? Yeah. Even if we feel like we're crazy. To just stand up and, and not care about what somebody else might say or what they might think. And Jesus says, the days are going to get darker. More persecution is going to come. It's not going to get easier. It's actually going to get harder. But he says, don't worry. Be on guard. Stay alert. Persecution is coming. I'm going to give you what you need when you need it. So in these disciples, immediate future, there's going to be false teachers that are showing up. There's going to be wars that are taking place. There's going to be earthquakes that are going on. He says in verse 7, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars and see kingdoms fighting against each other, false teachers trying to deceive, don't be alarmed by that. This has got to take place, but the end is not yet. It's just the birth pains. It's the beginning. It's the pain that comes before the joy. And so he's not talking yet about the end times. He's preparing these disciples for what's getting ready to come in their immediate future. During the first century, there are many people who claim to be a messiah. And they led rebellions against the Roman Empire. Uh, and the most famous one was led by a guy named Simon Barkova, who claimed to be the Messiah. And he grabbed a bunch of uh, Jewish folks to, um, to come along with him. And people believed that he was a Messiah or a Messiah-like figure. Um, and they followed him and they tried to fight against Rome. It did not work in 180, 132 AD. And they fell. Um, but he was just one deceiver of many who would come in the first century. And over the centuries, it's not changed. Every century has got people who claim to be Jesus or claim to be a Messiah, and they all kind of centers around the end times. And in their lifespan, there were wars. In their lifespan, there, there were earthquakes. And we've seen wars, and we've seen earthquakes, and we've seen countries that have been, uh, that have been severed because of, of war, that are war-torn. Uh, and even in my family, uh, my father-in-law, he fought in, uh, operation, or in, in Desert Storm. Any of y'all fight in Desert Storm or have family members who fought in Desert Storm? A um, couple of people. So he fought in Desert Storm. There was a war. And there was wars that were going on before and after that in our own lifespan. And then he fought in Operation Iraqi Freedom as well. And then in 2004, when I got called up to go, uh, he, he, was, uh, he was in Kuwait. And I met him in Kuwait, gave him a high five and a hug. He was on his way out and I was on my way in. There have been wars, and some of you have fought in wars, and you've got family members have been in wars, and you wonder, is, is that the time? Are we getting closer to the end time? And we see wars around the country. There is no cease of destruction that is happening. And Jesus said, take heed, be on alert. There are going to be false teachers, too, that are going to come at you, but don't fall for it. I'm telling you ahead of time, before it happens, so that you know when it happens, that you won't fall for these knucklehead 
I'm knockoff wannabe Jesus figures. I'm telling you right now so that you know. Think about in our lifetime, how many people have already come and they've tried to claim to be a Messiah or to be a Messiah figure? Claims to take people to heaven or takes people to utopia and to get them off this world, out of this world and to, to be somewhere else. Just in our own lifetime, how, how many of y'all remember Jim Jones? Jim Jones claimed to be the Messiah or a Messiah figure, right? And he gained incredible support. And ultimately, he led 900 people to a mass suicide. People who hoped in a, in a resurrection or hoped in a future, hoped in something different that, than what was going on in their world right now. And Jim Jones says, hey, I'll, I'll show you how to get there. And uh, he led a 900-person suicide with, with Kool-Aid. He poisoned Kool-Aid, a drink. That's where, that's where we get the phrase, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Or people drink the Kool-Aid when they're in on something that just doesn't make any sense. So Jim Jones was one of these guys. You guys remember Marshall Applewhite? This is a guy who's a little bit even further out there. And Marshall Applewhite, he claimed to be the Messiah or a Messiah-like figure. And he led a following of people who believed that a UFO... Listen, a UFO was going to come on the end, on the tail end of the Haley Bop Comet. Y'all remember the Haley Bop Comet when you're growing up? Yep. But in the 90s, he claimed that there was going to be a UFO who was going to, that was going to come and it was going to take people um, to heaven or to take people to a utopia. And he convinced people to go into, and they bought this elaborate place and they started their own little compound and they had their little space suits on. And they all did a mass suicide, expecting that a UFO was gonna be coming on this particular day, and they all died. And we're still here. It wasn't the day that Applewhite was talking about. Remember David Koresh and Waco? If you turn on your Netflix right now, it's, it's one of the promoted series um, that you're gonna see. And David Koresh, he was another Messiah-like figure, claimed to be... Um, uh, a prophet or, or a Messiah that was gonna lead people to heaven if they just followed his teaching. And all of the deception, oh, you, you see what happened in Waco. Men, women, children, they died in a fire. And all of the deception that we've seen for people who claim to be a Messiah, it all centers on the end time, uh, the hopes that people have in the end and, Jesus, and that Jesus is gonna be coming back. How does this happen? People get excited but they forget about what Jesus says here. Jesus says, take heed, don't be fooled. No one knows the day or the time. So he says in verse 32. So our charts and people have said it's gonna happen on this day. They all fall flat when we start pinpointing a day that Jesus is gonna be coming back. But yet deception comes around people who say that they know. And we get excited about Jesus coming back and he is coming back. And we're gonna talk about that next week. Um, so how about for us today as we wrap up? It's been a long morning. As believers who are following Jesus today, we need to expect that things won't be easy. Are y'all expecting life to just be smooth and everything go the way that you want? That is opposite and contrary to what Jesus says. We need to expect that things won't be easy. There's not a day that goes by that we get to just take a day off and we just get to stay in bed and act like our role isn't important. Your role is important and we need to act like it's important. So we have to stay awake. There is an enemy that is roaring like a lion that is seeking to devour and to destroy and to deceive and to disrupt and to discourage you away from following Jesus and making you ineffective. If he can do it, he will. 
And his deception hasn't changed over the years. He's not creative, but he is effective. And so we've got to stay awake. We've got to be alert. We, we can't be surprised by trouble. And so let me ask you right now, what are you troubled by? What, what is like putting the angst in you? Take it to Jesus. Where have you fallen asleep, mom? Where have you fallen asleep, dad? Where have you fallen asleep, friend? Coworker? Employer? Boss? Where have you fallen asleep? It's an opportunity to confess that and bring it back to Jesus, to repent of that and say, Jesus, help me. Help me, help me stay alert, help me to stay awake, help me to stay engaged. I say, let's take this week and let's pray. God, would you wake us up? Wake us up, because we wanna be effective. Would you pray with me? Whew, Jesus, 13 verses that we just touched. So much more packed into these things. Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us discernment as we read and as we study? Would you give us unity amongst brothers and sisters? Even if we fall in different places on this particular topic, I pray that we remember that we are friends looking forward to the resurrection or looking forward to the um, Jesus coming back. And so um, as we read this week, would you give us insight? Would your spirit just enlighten us, illumine the text for us? In our conversations that we have with each other, would you season them with salt and with grace and with truth and let us dig deep and um, drink deeply of your truth? Um, Father, but what we really want this week is we just wanna stay awake, we wanna stay alert. We wanna know that there is a, a, a roaring lion who is seeking to deceive us. And yet you've told us not to worry. You'll give us what we need when we need it. Help us to be bold, I pray in Jesus' name. Love you guys.